Father, I ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. You alone are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning. We are in uh, week two of a very special short sermon series, and we're, we've got readings accompanying that sermon series uh, to look at the key values and commitments um, of our young church. Um, the idea is to look at our identity and the mission that God has given us before a big transition this spring. Um, as many of you know, we are moving to a different Sunday morning facility, and a big part of that is, as you can tell, we just don't have enough seats. Um, and we especially don't have enough seats that aren't in the blinding sun. Um, so those of you who are being illumined, not just by the word and sacraments, but by the sun this morning, um, thank you for suffering for the Lord. And we know we are working on that as we move uh, here just really in a few weeks um, downtown so we can all be together. Uh, but last week, we looked at the theme of welcome. These are in the front cover of your bulletin. Welcome. Uh, focusing on gospel hospitality, valuing unity and charity as we bear with one another in love. And we mentioned this is not just being uh, pleasant or Southern um, or having hospitality like Martha Stewart. It's rooted in the gospel welcome we have received. And so Romans chapter 15, verse 7 says, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you uh, for the glory of God. And so we looked at that, and you might say, well, what comes next? After we've been welcomed, after we've come in, what does this church think is next? And we would say, well, <laughs> to stay a while, of course. Um, to stay and to rest and to remain for a while. And so this morning, we're going to look at a value and commitment of abiding. And what does it mean to abide in the Lord together? Um, and we're going to draw this primarily from John uh, chapter 15, um, by the way, abiding in the Lord is not something you just do one time and check a box. Um, it's not a one-time commitment. Um, it's, it's how we come around uh, as a habit, how we gather as the people of God to participate in the life of the triune God through these regular rhythms of formation and corporate worship and community. And so our goal really this morning is to look closely at that teaching of Jesus in John 15, about abiding in him, and to unpack a little bit about what that means for us, uh, for our spiritual life, for our formation. What does it mean when we gather in worship? What's it mean uh, for our goal as a vibrant, disciple-making, liturgical church um, that's all about the gospel? Um, and so first, let's talk about this call to abide, John 15, verses 1 through 11. Um, and we are jumping into the middle of a section of John's gospel called the Upper Room Discourse. Um, it's these, these chapters, John 13 through 17, right at the end um, of Jesus' ministry with his disciples just before he goes to the cross. Um, it's a key concentrated section of teaching where he's trying to train his closest followers. Um, he wants to give them a context. Here's what's going to happen as I'm betrayed, as I go to my cross, as I'm raised from the dead, Ascend to the Father and send you the Holy Spirit. This is what your life and mission uh, will look like. Um, and what I love about the, this section, the Upper Room Discourse, is that you have this concentrated teaching, but it's not just information transfer. Um, the Lord, in the midst of this teaching, gives them a clear example 
and he gives the church a gift. His example, as you might know, is that he washes his disciples' feet. And he calls them to do the same, um, and he calls them to the command of loving one another um, under God. And then the gift he gives to the church in the midst of this upper room discourse, the last thing in many ways he does is he gives them, uh, he institutes uh, this table. Um, Holy communion, Holy Eucharist. Um, Bishop N.T. Wright uh, says that when Jesus himself wanted to explain to his disciples what his forthcoming death was all about, um, he did, did not give them a theory. Theories are great. Theology is great. But he gave them a meal. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. But it's interesting. When Jesus wants to prepare his disciples, um, he teaches them. In this section, he prays for them. He shows them. He gives them examples. He gives them things to remember. And he gives them things to do. Habits and practices that will help them uh, remember uh, their life in the Lord and obey his commands. So that's why when we think about discipleship to Jesus, we don't just think about his teaching or uh, knowledge transfer in a classroom. Those are part of it, of course. Um, but we think about uh, there's so much more, including how we worship, um, what we think it means to be human, how we have been graciously welcomed into relationship with God, the Holy Trinity. And what's interesting in this passage, John 15, is just like he does so often in the Gospels, over and over again, um, Jesus will take something that's very familiar to God's people. He'll take an idea or an image or a promise from the Old Testament, and he'll wrap it around himself and show how God is fulfilling it in and through Jesus. Uh, sometimes in ways that are surprising and delightful um, and, and even subvert what they'd expected, but you can see the symmetry of God's plan and his goodness. And so that's what he does here with this image in John 15 of the vine. The vine. Um, let me explain a little bit. Um, in Psalm 80, uh, the psalmist says, You brought a vine out of Egypt. Um, you drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. In other words, the vine um, in the history of God's scriptures uh, was a picture of his people, Israel. Um, the vine that he planted in his land. And we see that thread throughout the Old Testament and we see another thread um, uh, that's problematic of brokenness. Isaiah chapter 5 um, this is what the prophet says, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it, cleared it of stones, planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes. He waited for the vine to bear fruit. And what Isaiah the prophet says is, But... It yielded wild grapes. It, it, it didn't bear the fruit um, that God intended or that God wanted or that God desires. And so Jesus comes to his disciples. He grabs that and says, hey, I am not just the vine, but the true vine, the good vine, the intended vine that can bear the right kinds of fruit. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul writes, For all the promises of God 
find their yes in him, in Jesus. He's showing how all this has pointed um, to him. And it's just worth noting that Jesus doesn't pull this image out of thin air. It's not like he's looking around stream of consciousness. Like if we were here, we might look around and go, you know, I am the tree trunk (laughs) or I am the light shining through the window, illumining you. I mean, there's all these things you could grab. No, he is grabbing this image uh, from the Old Testament. It's not just a clever image or illustration from gardening. It's about who Jesus is and who his people really are, what's going to happen to them as a result of his ministry, and how he will bear good fruit through them. He is the true vine. He is the vine, and we are the branches. We have been joined to Christ. And so he commands us, abide in me. And then he astonishes us with this promise, and I in you, that he will abide in us. He will rest and remain um, and be with us, with you and me, as we abide in him. He reminds us that when that connection is tended, um, when it's firm, when it's solid, we are fruitful. We bear good fruit for the Lord um, when we are connected to the vine. But apart from him, we can do nothing. One of the reasons that abiding in the Lord together is a core value and commitment of our church is because if we are doing anything that's not rooted in abiding in Christ, Jesus tells us it's not worth anything. It's a waste of time. You might as well hit snooze, grab the blanket, and stay warm. Why else would you come to church with God's people? It's it's mind-astonishing. And he wraps up this teaching in John 15 uh, with themes of glory. And he roots all of this in the love between the Father and the Son. And don't miss this. He says that, I mean, in the same way that God the Father loves God the Son, in that manner, in that amount, he loves us. It's not just this agricultural imagery of we're connected, but we're actually connected to him and his love for us. And that's this huge picture of the love that the son has from the father. Jesus says this is wrapped up finally in gospel obedience, and it culminates in this unimaginable and perfect joy. And he wants them to know that before he goes to his cross, before he is betrayed that they have the opportunity because of what he's going to do to participate in the very life of the triune God. You see, as I read this upper room discourse, John 13 through 17, I'm just struck that this might be um, the most Trinitarian section of the Gospels. I mean, you see little, little snippets, little captions of the Trinity, like when Jesus is baptized. Um, And we have Jesus, the Son, in the water. We hear the voice of the Father. The Spirit descends like a dove. Oh, it's the Trinity as a picture. But here, the whole thing is shaped by an understanding of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Um, John 15, of course, Jesus has talked about the relationship he has with his Father. But in the previous chapter, John 14, um, he's talking all about God the Holy Spirit. Here's what it says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. 
The helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring to, to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Here's why that's interesting. Before we have the command to abide in Christ, Jesus tells his disciples that the Holy Spirit is going to dwell and abide in us. That's what's going to enable us to abide in Jesus, and then Jesus will abide in us. It's all shaped by the relationship of the Trinity. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And God is going before us by grace to get us ready to do what he commands in John 15. He's going to send his Spirit to abide in us so we can begin to respond to this call to abide in him. And then by the Spirit, Jesus will abide in us. Here's the thing, friends. All my life, um, as I think about the, the purpose of Christianity, the spiritual life, um, I think when I was growing up, there were two main goals of Christianity. Um, when I was younger, the main goal of the Christian life um, was to avoid hell. Let's be honest. It was a good old fire and brimstone Baptist upbringing. And we knew that if we cut our deal, then we were okay. And we would be able to go forward and be baptized and life would be good. Um, and as far as we knew, that was the sum whole total of the Christian life. Avoid fire. I think as I got a little bit older and even as things developed in that, in that Baptist church, by the time I got to high school, I was told, hey, the goal is not simply fire insurance, but to have a relationship with God. And I'll tell you, as a teenager, that was incredibly confusing. I didn't know what a relationship with God meant. I didn't know what a relationship was. I, did, I wasn't even good at having like relationships with friends. Um, certainly not relationships with like members of the opposite sex. Like we did, I didn't know who I was. Does that mean like I schedule a play date or like what does it mean to have a relationship with God? Do I have to create this and craft it out of thin air? It totally confused me. Um, I had no clue what that meant. And then probably 10 or 15 years ago, um, the, the light bulb kind of came on. I had this epiphany moment um, where I realized that we don't have to craft and create and manufacture a relationship with God. Instead, there is a relationship that exists within God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we are invited with others into that relationship as his bride, the church. We don't have to manufacture it. There's not play dates. <laughs> There's this incredible reality that exists between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, to encapsulate this, I came across a quote from Pope uh, John Paul II, who said, God has revealed his innermost secret. God himself is an eternal exchange of love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and he has destined us to share in that exchange. It's not just a me and God or a me and Jesus. <laughs> it's God the Holy Trinity, and we're invited into that love, that relationship, that dance forever as his people. Um, C.S. Lewis described the same idea um, in a little different way in his uh, book, Mere Christianity. He, he said a car, an automobile, is made to run on petrol. Um, that's British for gasoline, but uh, petrol. 
and it would not run properly on anything else. So says, now God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is our fuel. The fuel our spirits were designed to burn or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That is why it is just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion. He wrote that God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There's no such thing. St. Augustine put it a little bit differently this way. You have made us for yourself and our heart is restless until it rests in you. When we talk about a value, a commitment to abide, um, this is what we're talking about. We want to do everything we can as a church um, to, to help you encounter the love of God within the Holy Trinity, to help bring you into that love within his body, his bride, the church, to do the kinds of things when we gather together that make you aware of and help you participate in the life and love of the triune God. We want us to be, our imaginations to be shaped in every way possible uh, by this crucial reality. That's the goal when we talk about spiritual formation, how we follow the Lord during the week together. When we talk about corporate worship and community, it's all to assist us in this call to abide, to rest, to remain, to delight in the life and love of the triune God, which bears fruit eventually in love for one another. That's a theme that runs through the entire upper room discourse. How do we love one another? What is this fellowship that God has joined us to um, and infused and empowered by um, his Holy Spirit? What's it mean to abide in Christ? Uh, I'm actually indebted to um, a guy named Dale Bruner. He's a New Testament scholar. Um, and Dale Bruner lists four ways in which we abide. Um, and I, I, what I like about Dale Bruner, some of you know that in the past I was on staff with Young Life, which is a great uh, ministry. We support and partner with Young Life here. And when I was on staff, uh, they took us out to Oregon for three weeks to train us. And for one of those weeks, they stuck us in an auditorium with this guy, Dale Bruner, who's a New Testament scholar, and said, you're going to sit for a whole week and just walk through the Gospel of John. You're going to see what is this story? Who is this Jesus? What are we proclaiming um, as we go out in his name and by the power of his spirit? And he said that there are four main ways that we abide with the Lord, that we obey this kind of strange abstract command. He said the first is prayer. We abide in the Lord through prayer. Uh, second, holy communion the gift that he gives his church in the midst of these chapters. When we participate and receive Holy Communion, that is part of our abiding in him and he abiding in us. Third, he said we continue um, in his word. We hold fast to the teaching. That we are nourished by the very word of God. And fourth, it results in obedience and fellowship as we love one another. Prayer, the Holy Table, the Holy Scriptures, fellowship and love for one another. Now, it's in a little different order, but if you're hearing those, you might kind of ping, like, man, I've heard something like that before in the Bible. And it's from Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, 
Um, the Lord does what Jesus has told us in John 14 he will do. He sends the Holy Spirit upon the church, and we get this description of their common life together. Acts 2 says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the word, the gospel. They devoted themselves to the fellowship, the love they have for one another. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, the holy table. And they devoted themselves to the prayers. Um, you see, friends, when we talk about these values and commitments, um, there is nothing new or novel or original. We are simply seeking to obey the pattern that the Lord sets forth. We're seeking to follow the pattern of um, the early church and the way that folks have followed the Lord and been nourished in faith for generations and generations and generations and generations. We're actually seeking what they used to call in the church um, the reliable, ordinary means of grace. Prayer, fellowship, God's word, God's table. That's what we're about here. Um, and I get that for some of us, that's even maybe new. It's so old, it's new again. Um, Michael Horton, who's a theologian, points out that American Christianity, which most of us are products in some way or the other of different parts of, of God's church, American Christianity is a story of perpetual upheavals in churches and individual lives. Starting with extraordinary conversion experiences, our lives are motivated by a constant expectation for the next big thing. We're looking for excitement. Uh, things have been marked by entertainment. Uh, we're looking for the most dramatic thing we could uh, possibly imagine. Um, I've shared with some of you, uh, this was so real when I was growing up. I thought your conversion had to be so dramatic that when I was a teenager, I was like, man, my conversion story is super boring. <laughs> like people get up in church and they give their testimony and they talk about all the things that they did and that all sounds fun. And apparently that's all forgivable. <laughs> and so I was like, I'm going to make a better conversion story. <laughs> and ran wild a little bit in high school so that I would have something to convert from. Um, that's not the goal. Um, and I say that and it's a little silly, but I think a lot of us feel that. Um, instead of going, man, look how the Lord has raised me in the faith. Look how I've come to know and rely and trust in God's work for me and for my salvation. Uh, we focus on ourselves and our experience and what we've done and not done instead of focusing on the Lord and what he has done. And how everyone who is connected to him, every branch connected to the true vine, that story is beautiful and wondrous. Whether it's like St. Paul who was, you know, massively dramatic or if it was like the disciples who gradually came to know the Lord. It's fascinating. Michael Horton, just getting back to him, says that we in the church today have grown bored with the ordinary means of grace. Attending church week in, week out. Paying attention to the doctrines and disciplines that have shaped faithful Christian witness in the past. We often marginalize and substitute with newer fashions or methods. He says, the new and improved may dazzle us for a moment, but soon they become so last year, so dated. There's an expiration date on them. And so as we think about what we're trying to do, 
Um, the goal is not to be new or novel. The goal is to connect to the living God. Amen. Now and forever. And so what all this means is that Christian worship and what we do when we gather and the shape of Christian worship is far more important than any of us realize or hope or imagine. By the way, if this intrigues you, um, there's a book called You Are What You Love. It's by James K.A. Smith, Jamie Smith. Um, and especially if you come from a tradition that's not used to liturgy um, and, and kind of the ordinary means of grace, it's, a, it's an eye-opening read on how this is actually worked out in the life of a local congregation. Um, it's so important that some of you know, I'm doing a class on Saturday mornings. It's called Foundations. It's a, what, eight, nine-month-long um, discipleship journey together. And I was told I could pick two books for the class to read. And if you know me, narrowing down to two books is really, really difficult. But this is one of the books we picked. You are what you love. Um, and we actually picked two passages of Scripture to focus on for the whole year. The whole fall, we looked at the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5 through 7. And this spring, we're looking at this upper room discourse, this portion of John. John 13 through 17. It's these two massive sections where Jesus gives extended teaching on what it means to follow him. And so our strategy is to listen to the Lord in community as we practice uh, these things together. This is how foundational these things are um, to us. Um, and in that book, You Are What You Love, um, here's a claim that Jamie Smith makes. It says, to be a human... Uh, to be someone created in the image of God is to be a liturgical animal, a creature whose loves are shaped by our worship. And worship isn't optional. That's his claim. We are liturgical creatures. Um, we, we seek out habits and ritual and tradition and ways of doing things on a regular basis. He says we all do that. Um, whether, and he, he's not just narrowing that down to church. He says, we just, that's how we're wired, is as these liturgical creatures. And he says, we're actually wired to worship. We're going to worship something. And the way we worship actually shapes what we worship. Um, let me illustrate. This, I see. So, for example, um, when we brought uh, Chris and Britta Segan out, they were visiting from Kansas City. This is what, five, six years ago. And we're exploring, hey, are they being called to come and partner with us in this new work of planting St. Thomas Anglican Church? He's going to lead music. Um, he's going to look at worship. Um, do you know what we did to give him a taste of what worship looks like in Athens? What it looks like to be a liturgical creature? Because we worship, all of us worship, and worship isn't optional. Um, we took him to the cathedral. Sanford Stadium. We got club level seats for Georgia versus Missouri in a football game. And you laugh, but we came in and we thought, man, we are liturgical creatures. Look at these traditions. Look at these uh, life giving habits. These, um, you know, these things that I, I was told early on hey, no one wants to do liturgy. It's repetitive and it's rote. And once it's repetitive, it's meaningless. And I was like, Dude, they call the dogs every kickoff. <laughs> no one sees it as repetitive or rote or meaningless. It actually gives us something to do together. 
And what it accomplishes is more than just this little cheer. It binds that group together in actually really supernatural ways that are fascinating. Um, And when we say worship isn't optional, I mean, how often is worship expressed in that cathedral? How often do, I mean, it's almost embarrassing to think how folks root their identity in the life of that world. How, how are our weeks um, are nourished or famished based on what happens in that place, um, that state? We are all liturgical creatures. We all worship. Worship isn't optional. The question is, how do you worship and what effect does that have on you? Is it shaping you um, in the right way to abide in Christ? to participate in the life and love of the living God, or is it calling you into a different version of what it means to be human? Um, And this is where even forms of church can simply reinforce our own idolatries and lesser loves instead of actually helping us abide in Christ, abide in the living, uh, holy God. And so Jamie Smith writes this, the practices of Christian worship train our love. They are the practice for the coming kingdom, um, habituating us as citizens of the kingdom of God. Christian worship, we should recognize, is essentially a counterformation to all of those rival liturgies we are often immersed in. Cultural practices that covertly capture our loves and longings, miscalibrating them, orienting us to rival versions of the good life. And this is why worship is at the heart of discipleship. The church, the body of Christ, is the place where God invites us to renew our loves, to reorient our desires, to retrain our appetites. Indeed, isn't it the church where we are nourished by the word, where we eat the word and receive the very bread of life? The church is that household where the spirit feeds us what we need. And where by his grace, we become a people who desire him above all else. Christian worship is the feast where we acquire new hungers for God and for what God desires and are then sent into his creation to act accordingly. Um, When we think about this way of worship and this pattern, um, my hope is that it would become second nature for us. It would become ingrained in us. It would help us to abide in the Lord as he abides um, in us. Let me give you one last example. We're almost done. Um, And this was, I didn't have this in my notes, but it it came to me in the last service. I'd like to share it with you today. Um, As we think about this value of participating in the life of the triune God, of being formed spiritually and coming together in worship, uh, many of you know that we stream our services now. Um, That was kind of something that all of us learned how to do during COVID. Um, And I'm actually glad that we still stream our services. Um, I got a a very encouraging message this week from uh, one of our folks. I think she she may even be here, but um, she's a nurse. And she is a nurse in a care facility here in the area. Um, And being a nurse means that sometimes she's on shift on Sundays. And so, (laughs) yeah, so last week uh, she was on shift and we were streaming, and so she just set up shop there at her desk at the nurse's station. 
um, and was streaming our service. And um, a lot of the folks she cares for are dealing with um, dementia and Alzheimer's. Um, they're anxious. They're agitated. Um, they, they can be very vocal about that agitation. Um, and she just wanted to let me know that as we uh, streamed our service, um, one of her friends uh, here at this facility, um, who usually, you know, after five minutes, it's just agitation, just came over and sat down and she shared a bag of chips um, and sat and abided and rested and was at peace as she watched the service of word and sacrament. Um, not because what we're doing is, is extraordinary, it's ordinary. And it's familiar and it's habitual in the best ways. And it was just, it was incredible to think um, that, that this dear, uh, dear lady who in many ways is lost to herself, that the Lord was seeking her out, that a connection was made, that she came back to herself and who she is as a child of God for a moment. And, and what great knowledge that as she abides in the Lord and he abides in her, even in the midst of when she doesn't even realize it, God is at work. And God delights in her. And the Lord will one day welcome her home and say, well done. She will hear the voice of the good shepherd whom she has rested in and abided in. Because our view of the Christian life is not just a moment um, or not next month, or not next year. It's a lifetime of following the Lord and being welcomed home by Him. And how we can facilitate that process here um, as we gather. All right, one last, uh, one last thing. Um, this is so important to us um, that you might even have noticed that we utilize much of this language every week when we come to the Lord's table, Holy Communion. Um, and we don't use the word abide, but we really do. So I want you to listen for it in just a moment. Um, here's what we pray. Um, grant that we who partake of this Holy Communion may receive the body and blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, and be made one body with Him, that He may dwell in us and we in Him. And that's the, that's the abide. That He may abide in us. And we may abide in him together. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.